Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. This is our second of two episodes with a university president as we celebrate the beginning of the academic year. Be sure to check out our last conversation with President Tanya Tetlow from Loyola University, New Orleans. Today, we welcome Dr. Mike Lovell, the president of Marquette University in Milwaukee. Like President Tetlow at Loyola, Dr. Lovell is the first ever layperson to serve as president of Marquette. I was really struck by the story he shared with me of discerning the call to accept this pressure-packed position. He's clearly a person of deep faith. Dr. Lovell is an engineer and an inventor by trade, but one of his biggest passions in higher ed is working to address childhood trauma and the intergenerational cycle of poverty. We talked about that important work and how a university can be both responsive to trauma and committed to academic freedom. Dr. Lovell also described what it's like to be in a cage underwater surrounded by hungry sharks, so listen up for that. As always, please subscribe to AMDG wherever you listen, and if you'd be so kind, leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Mike Lovell, thank you so much for coming on AMDG. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. So you uh, are about to start, I guess, around your fifth or sixth year now uh, as president of Marquette University. Um, it's academic year, just getting going. I, I saw you uh, recently handing out sandwiches to students arriving <laughs> on campus. So uh, what's the uh, what's the environment like on campus these days? Well, you know, uh, first of all, the start of the school year is, is a really special time, and there's so much energy and excitement and. And we welcomed 2,000 uh, new freshmen, and uh, it's one of my favorite things of the uh, of the years. Freshman convocation, where we welcome uh, students and their families into the Marquette family, and it's just a uh, just a really great time. And you know, and also understanding it's also a difficult time, you know, for for new students. For many uh, freshmen, this may be the diff- most difficult thing they've done to this point, and we just want to let them know that. Uh, there are people here uh, that we all want them to be successful. And if they need anything to make sure you reach out and, you know, find connection points with the university so that when they do experience difficulties, uh, they have uh, people and uh, resources for them, you know, to ensure that they can get through those. Yeah. What, what is the message to those families, again, coming for the first time or those students? How do you help ease that transition? Yeah. So first, uh, one of the things we, we want to ensure is that the parents, uh, First of all, that they feel, you know, comfortable leaving their son or daughter with us and trusting us with them. And so we make sure that they have connection points. The parents, you know, we have Facebook groups and, you know, make sure they know all the ways they can get information with things that are going on at the university, you know, so they can best support uh, their son or daughter. But for the students themselves, the biggest message that I try to tell them is that in the first six weeks, it's really, really important for them to get connected uh, to people at the university. And whether that, I always encourage them to um, join clubs or groups, you know, that they're interested in, maybe put themselves out there, try something new and, and get engaged that way, you know, form study groups, you know, get, you know, engage in your residence hall, make sure you know who your RA is. And, and, uh, and so when you kind of on the front line and, and also encourage them to go to faculty office hours, because one of the things I'm so proud of at our campus is how much our faculty are invested in our students. And many, many times our faculty just go above and beyond the classroom to help students, you know, make important life decisions or help them through difficult times that they've experienced. So, you know, again, it's, it's all about being connected because all of us fall down 
you know, and for many students, you know, they were very successful in high school and growing up. And so they may fail for the first time when they're here. And we just want to make sure that uh, there are resources here to help them fail, evolve and grow. And so they can become resilient because that's a really important characteristic as they go out into the world. So what number freshman class is this for you then that you're welcoming? This is my sixth. Your sixth. Yeah. Okay. So have you yes. seen things change among, from those classes uh, over this now a little bit more than, than half a decade? Yeah. Well, the first thing is, is I found that communicating with them is constantly changing. You know, I always say that I, I keep adding social media platforms because uh, the, uh, even over six years, it's been amazing how, you know, we, we started out, you know, uh, with Twitter and most of the students today now you have to go through Instagram. Uh, I know Snapchat is very popular with this group as well. And so, uh, first of all, the mode of communication has, has been different. And also it's been interesting seeing how technology is evolving. So this group of freshmen now, these are all people that grew up with technology. You know, they were the ones whose families had iPads and smartphones, you know, pretty much their whole lives. And so they're very adept actually using multiple screens at once. And uh, I would say that when I think about, you know, this group, um, you know, even even in high school, I think now 5% of uh, students taking online classes at colleges are high school students. So when they come to the campus, you know, they are very used to, you know, learning from digital platforms and, you know, other things much more so than maybe even six years ago when I started. Yeah. And I, I guess that most students coming in, most freshmen now, were probably all born in the year 2000 or later, right? I mean, that's, that's what yeah, we're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. 2000, 2001 for most of the students, I guess, right? right? Yeah. That's crazy to think about. And I'm not even all that old. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm curious about your the way you came to Mar Marquette. Your, your background is in engineering and innovation. So could you just tell me a little bit about that path for you, kind of where you had gotten your professional start and, and how it led to your career. Yeah, it, it was, it, you know, and I will just, and I, and I tell this to students all the time. If you think, you know, you, you kind of, when you're in school, you have a plan for your life. And uh, if you think that you, you know where you're going to be 20 years from now, you know, I can just promise you it's not going to be where you thought you were going to be because it kind of, if you follow, you know, God's path and plan, he will go to some extraordinary, unexpected places. And that was the case for me. You know, I, I, I got my PhD and uh, mechanical engineering from Pittsburgh. Uh, my last two years as a student and my first two years after I graduated, I, I was working for a startup engineering software company and, um, you know, was kind of in that innovative tech world. And uh, at the end of my fourth year with the company, we went public and it was a great opportunity for me to pivot, at, you know, out of the organization and go into academia, which I was interested in. But knowing that that those four years actually helped form, you know, the way I do many things in my professional life. So I got into academia, you know, was a faculty member, started at University of Kentucky, then went back to my alma mater, University of Pittsburgh after after four years and was really, you know, happy, you know, teach, being in the classroom. I did a lot of research. I was running a, a product innovation center, you know, working with a lot of companies and, um, you know, you know, my wife thought we'd be in Pittsburgh forever. And then uh, it was interesting. I, I started getting you know, recruited to be a dean of engineering at different places. And uh, I never really thought, you know, too much about it till I got, uh, my kids got a little older. My my oldest daughter was in seventh grade. And, you know, I was told you never move your kids when they're in high school. It's really difficult. And so I made a decision to actually, you know, consider being a dean uh, somewhere. And I was recruited by several schools and ended up coming to Milwaukee, Federal University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, uh, back in 2008 as the Dean of Engineering. And 
lo and behold, to my surprise, after two years, the chancellor over there stepped down and uh, I was asked by the Wisconsin system to step in on the interim basis. And first of all, I'd only been dean for two years and only been in Milwaukee two years at the institution. I, I, I was kind of reluctant to do it, but the only reason why I did it is I was helping drive several big initiatives at the university that I was afraid that wouldn't be formally approved by the state unless I, I stayed you know, involved in uh, the role. And one thing led to another, and I became the permanent chancellor there. And again, this is nothing that I had ever aspired to as a, as a, as a, um, you know, in my professional career as an individual. It just kind of happened, and uh, and then I was chancellor there for four years. And uh, Father Pilars, who had been the, the the president at Marquette, stepped down after a little over a year. And uh, you know, I actually had a number of people, you know, kind of. Uh, administrators and trustees from Marquette asked me to consider coming across town. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I dismissed it, you know, kind of without really thinking about it. You know, I said no f- at least five times uh, to even, you know, thinking about, you know, throwing my hat into the ring. And then I remember being in a meeting with <clears throat> Father Wild, who uh, who had he was former president and then came back in on an interim basis. And he said to me in, in the meeting, which we were meeting about something completely different. He said, you know, I know people are talking about coming over here. I just want you to stand before God and ask him what will give you the most fulfillment in your life. And until he asked me to do that, I never went to serious reflection and prayer about what God's you know, path was for me and whether this was part of his plan. And I kept expecting to have some, you know, lightning bolt or something tell me what to do. And that never happened. And I, I, I have a spiritual advisor. We, we talked about it. We prayed about it a lot. And Kind of what happened, you know, over the next couple of months, you know, I prayed with my wife Amy about it. Um, I came at peace at knowing that this is what God had was calling me to do. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty, you know, moving across town. I didn't know how people would react either at the university I was at, the university I was going to, how the people, you know, in Milwaukee would feel. And uh, really, it's just, you know, I can honestly say that something happens every day that makes me thankful that I'm at Marquette university. And, you know, I know that uh, this is where I'm meant to be right now. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Wow. Yeah. One of the big emphases for Jesuits is, you know, discerning what God is calling us to in our lives, like kind of going through that process of, of discernment to see like, how might I be called to be using my gifts? What were some of the signs for you in that process of your own reflection and discernment that suggested, Oh no, this is where I need to be. Well, so well, one thing that was was very important to me. You know, I'm a I'm a devout Catholic, you know, and you know, it's fairly active. When you're at a public institution, you, know, you can't talk about those things in public settings, and you know, it's something that you know, it's it's such an important part of who I am and what I believe in. And to be at an institution where I can do that in a very outward nature and be able to kind of be myself in a way that I think I'm called to be. And, and the second thing was that, that really, you know, I've always felt and believed in being a servant leader. And if you know much about the Jesuits, you know, what we really try to train students to do are be men and women for others and to live their life in, in service. And that, I can't tell you how much that resonates with my value system and, and what I am and who I believe in. And so as I really, you know, reflected and, you know, prayed and thought about what it meant to be a leader at a Catholic institution, I just realized that it really, you know, did fit, you know, what I, um, what I really was being called to do. And so I think, you know, the, the service, you know, 
the the Catholic nature, you know, all of those things, you know, are things that, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that I can very outwardly do today. Sure. You, when you accepted the role, became the first not Jesuit president in Marquette's history, the first lay president. Uh, what was that like when, as you were kind of growing into the role and um, has that been a, a challenge, a, a blessing, both of those things? Yeah. So the, the, it's really funny when I was named at my first press conference, I, the first question I got was when was I going to hire a basketball coach? <laughs> because uh, Buzz Williams, the, the, uh, the, the former coach had just stepped down the Friday before I was named. And so that was front and center of everyone's mind. But the second question I got was what's going to be your biggest challenge, you know, stepping into this role as the first lay president. And I said, well, you know, it's going to be leading a Jesuit institution without formally being trained as a Jesuit and understanding, you know, all the traditions, you know, all the things that, you know, the Jesuit university had been around for almost 500 years. And so, you know, I felt a real obligation to uphold, you know, the history and the traditions of the Jesuits and ensure that we were still going to, you know, educate students in the ways that were really important to that. And so that I said from the beginning that that was going to be my biggest challenge, you know, stepping into the role because I'd already been a president before I knew how to, you know, how to run a university. And, you know, one of the things that I feel very blessed about is that my first year I got to be involved in something called the Ignatian Colleagues Program, which was an 18 month long program where I was part of a cohort where <clears throat> uh, lay leaders at Jesuit institutions are kind of are trained and indoctrinated in what it means to be a Jesuit university. And, you know, I read, I probably read a dozen books. Uh, we got together every month and I was part of a group, you know, from around the country that we, we talked about things. We watched a lot of videos. We uh, heard a lot of Jesuit speakers, uh, but the two really, you know, there's, well, three really you know, fundamental things I got to do during those two months that, that really, I think, helped transform me and was just tremendous learning experiences where the first was I went on a, a week-long silent retreat and I went through the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And, you know, at this point in my professional life and in, in my life and just in general, to take a week's time to do nothing but reflect on the journey that God went through on his time on here on earth and think about, you know, what that means and how we could kind of you kind of go through that with them and have the time to be in reflection and prayer by yourself and doing that is just, you know, again, you just don't have that opportunity as an adult, you know, and to be able to do that as part of my job, you know, that that's a really remarkable gift. Uh, the second thing I got to do is I spent nine days down in <clears throat> Santiago, Chile. I stayed in the Jesuit community and I went out to all the service sites uh, and saw all the things that they were doing and was in, in you know, partake and some of the, the activities that they were doing to really, you know, help the community that they were in and, you know, to be embedded and to be, you know, that, that really that complete and total dedication to serving the underserved, speaking for people without a voice was something that, again, you know, was great for me to be part of and to be, you know, actually living in a, in, for nine days in the, in the house with the Jesuits that were doing this every day and being immersed in that, again, that really, you know, helped me see and, and understand, you know, what we were calling our students to do and really how, when, uh, when they leave our doors, you know, as a university, that they would you know, continue on in that tradition. And then I would say the final thing is I got to do a capstone project. And the project that I chose was a project called Sacred Spaces, where I <clears throat> was able to document all the sacred spaces and 
artifacts and images we have on campus. And so uh, we put them all online. So you go on a virtual tour and read all about them. We actually have a physical map. So if you want to walk around campus and do a, a, a physical tour, you can as well. And then as part of that, I was able to add my own sacred space was a grotto uh, to the Virgin Mary. And I've always, uh, you know, had a real affinity to Mary and, you know, been, I feel like, uh, she's been an important part of, you know, helping, you know, me get through, you know, my life and some of the important decisions that I've made and be able to add that space to the campus for, you know, not only myself, but, you know, our students and faculty and staff for reflection and prayer uh, ended up being something that, you know, again, for me, you know, is something that I, I, I really yeah, makes me, you know, feel really good about the role that I'm in. I've been to Marquette a handful of times and, and one space there, sacred space that always really stands out is the uh, the Joan of Arc Chapel. And I remember going to mass there on a, a weeknight and filled with students sitting on the floor. And uh, <laughs> has that space become important to you? And uh, can you tell of course. us a little bit about I mean, it? Tuesday night mass is a Tuesday night mass. I'm sure the one you came to was, you know, I'm a regular there as well. And certainly Joan of Arc Chapel is just, it's just a special place. And the great thing about the grotto is we actually, put the grotto on the back patio of the chapel. So it just extends, you know, the, the that, that great space on our campus in, in a unique way. And so, yeah, but the, if anybody comes to Marquette University, you have to go to the General Park Chapel. And it's just, it's, it's amazing, you know, to have, you know, something that was, you know, built so long ago, you know, was brought over to this country and now sits on our campus. It's just amazing. Yeah, it just seems like such a, a great space and just the important, again, idea of college students in the midst of craziness, carving out that time of quiet and reflection, yeah. I imagine would be kind of this important value for uh, for you know a Jesuit institution to make sure that students have that space to to reflect and to get some quiet. Yeah, and, and I talk to students all the time about this, and I say that, you know, I take at least 15 minutes a day just for reflection and prayer to really help discern, you know, what is God calling me to do? And, you know, we have a Jesuit tradition called the examen at the end of the day to think about, okay, you know, what do we do today? What kind of impact do we have? What can we have done differently? What can we learn from? You know, those are all things that we do encourage students to do when on our campus. So as you've grown into this role over uh, the past handful of years, uh, one topic that has become central to your work is addressing childhood trauma and mental health. Uh, could you just Tell me a little bit about why that's become such a, an important emphasis for you. Oh, of course. And, you know, Milwaukee is an interesting city. You know, we have, it's a great city, but we also have, like many cities, we have a lot of challenges. And uh, part of the challenges is we're a very segregated city. We have a lot of disparities. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that I think as an institution we're called to do is to address those disparities. And, you know, back to the Ignatian Colleagues program, uh, we read a book called Racial Justice in the Catholic Church by Father Brian Massingale. And in the book, it talked about how if we're not working, actively working to change systems uh, that are inherently unfair to certain, you know, populations, individuals, you know, in our country, then we are being implicitly racist. And I never thought of myself as being racist before until I read that book. And so coming out of the Nation College Program, I was looking, you know, for what can I do to actually start changing systems and sort of addressing some of the, the disparities we know that exist within our city uh, is part of our mission. And as a leader of the institution like Marquette, it's something that I was called to do. And it took a while for me to figure out what exactly, you know, I could do to start changing systems and addressing disparities. And it wasn't until 
uh, November of 2017, when we actually had a, we have something called the Marquette Forum, where we have a series of events around a certain topic during the years. And uh, this, in 2017, 2018, the topic was uh, the disparities, particularly health disparities in the city. And uh, we had an event at the nursing school where we had eight panelists that were talking about uh, the disparities that exist in their sectors. We had some from law enforcement, the criminal justice, economic development, healthcare, education. We had somebody from the media there. We had some of our neuroscience faculty, uh, but they were all talking about, you know, what was some of the root causes of the disparities in Milwaukee? And it, it turned out it was trauma and generational trauma that uh, populations have experienced, you know, in Milwaukee for 30, 40, or 50 years and how that trauma affects them personally, but then they pass that on to their children. And what happens is, you know, so many, you know, whether it be, you know, mental health issues, you know, drug addiction, you know, um, alcoholism, you know, some, some of the major issues, the inability to learn, you know, these are all things that are really, you know, are caused fundamentally by trauma. And so I kind of realized at that moment, you know, it was great. Now we knew that trauma was one of the basic building blocks of fixing our city. You know, what were we going to do about it? And we were kind of talking about that after the event. And on the way home, my wife, Amy said to me, you know, Mike, you really have to do something about this. Cause she, she's actually, uh, was a pharmacist, pharmacist and worked in a psychiatric hospital and kind of has understood this, you know, for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And, you know, she's been very, you know, uh, she runs a nonprofit, you know, that helps deal with resiliency for youth. And she said, you know, this is, this is huge and, you know, something that you should think about doing. So I actually just got, uh, invited everybody who's at, at that, forum back to campus said, let's have a discussion about what we can do. And we always start the meetings by saying, if there's somebody who's not here that needs to be, invite them. And so uh, that was in January of 2018. We're now a little over 18 months into this. And uh, the group has just grown by leaps and bounds. It's really become a movement here in Milwaukee. And we have about 900 people that have come to the meetings from 400 and some organizations. Uh, we had a conference last year. We had almost 1,500 people come to learn about becoming trauma-informed and how we can use trauma-informed practices, you know, to make our workplaces, our places of worship, our schools and others better. Our second conference is coming up uh, this October. Uh, and just really exciting to see how many people have become involved in this. There's now eight action teams that are working on different ways we can address trauma within our city. And so it's just, um, you know, for me, you know, I, I kind of have a platform where I'm just really trying to bring people together and, and get behind some of the great work and the great ideas that people have within the city. What seem to be some of the really key things to start when you were looking at addressing trauma and trying to, to stop it from continuing to be that generational yeah. problem? So, so it's really interesting. So, uh, Kind of when I got into this, you know, again, I'm an engineer and I've, I've started a lot of initiatives, a lot of nonprofits and, uh, you know, centers or institutes, you know, something I've done throughout my career. And so I kind of started with the same kind of roadmap uh, as I used to form those things. And what I quickly learned is that this solving this challenge or, or addressing this would not be done through a top down approach. The only way that it could be solved was be having the community at the table with you, the people that are experiencing the trauma, that are experiencing the stress, and that are really in many ways victim of the circumstances they're in. They had to be at the table with us. We had to learn from them, learn what their challenges, and then learn their ideas about ways and where the gaps were that we needed to help provide solutions. And so, uh, and what I wasn't expecting was the distrust that existed 
between people within the community that are experiencing these things and institutions like Marquette, these big institutions that have been around for a long time. Um, and so, so much of what I've had to do is really try to rebuild that trust. And so much of this is really embedded in racism and things that have, decisions that have been made, you know, by institutions within the city that have, you know, kept certain segments of the population, you know, feeling powerless. And so, uh, we had to have many conversations. You know, I just got back from a, a, a meeting with, uh, with some pastors at a place called Coffee Makes You Black within the inner city. Just again, talking about ways that we can have those conversations in a way that will build trust and that people with, that are experiencing uh, the challenges can be heard and that their ideas can be moved upon in institutions like Marquette, who we have people and resources and things that we can help, you know, make the change happen. And so it's really you know, to me, the big, the biggest thing that I've learned through this is that, you know, we cannot be arrogant and think we have the solution to anything. The only way that things will get solved is having the people that are experiencing the challenges, you know, be at the table. And really, it's our role to help uplift them and put women behind their sails. So how have faculty members or students been involved in some of these initiatives? Well, as you can imagine, uh, it's, it's great that we have so many resources on the campus and, and forefront of those resources are the people. And so we have so many faculty members that actually do research directly in areas. You know, I talked about the neuroscientists, but then there are people in our education school. There are people in our psychology department. There are people in even our, our theology and philosophy. I mean, it, it cuts. A, I mean, there's so many areas that the research and activities of our faculty directly have been able to plug in to what some of the needs are, you know, for our community. And, uh, and for the students, it's great because we have students, you know, it, again, as a Jesuit institution, our students, you know, do, you know, about 500,000 hours of community service in our city a year. And so they're actually volunteering and going out into many of the places where people that are experiencing trauma are, are coming to you to get, you know, they get food or clothing or other resources. And what we've done is we've been able to help the students become trauma informed and so that they can, you know, understand, and recognize when people that they're interacting with, you know, have, have are dealing with trauma and give them tools to actually be able to help start the healing process. Because really the first step in the healing process of people with trauma is they need to feel valued and like people care about them and have trusting relationships. And our students can serve that role if they're going out to the same community organizations all the time. And I think, uh, and one of the neat things we did uh, is I launched something last year called the President's Challenge. Uh, where I put uh, about uh, $250,000 in funding in partnership with Johnson Controls uh, that actually required uh, a faculty from our uh, social sciences, our hard sciences, and um, the humanities and liberal arts to work together with a community to help uh, address one of the disparities that that community had felt. And so it was amazing. We had eight incredible proposals came in. Uh, we ended up f uh, funding one particularly in, in the Metcalf Park neighborhood here in Milwaukee that was dealing with um, mental health services for children. And it was a place where it was a, a desert for care for students, for young children had experiencing uh, mental health. Uh, so uh, the clinic has opened up. Uh, we have, you know, our faculty are there. Uh, we are actually have students there. They're being trained to help actually help create more practitioners that can then serve urban settings like in Milwaukee. Uh, when there's just aren't enough, you know, out there. And so, and there were six community organizations that partnered directly with us and actually 
they were the ones who defined what the need were and what the solution was. And so for us, it's been great uh, to see uh, this thing actually take off and launch and really address a need within our city in a, in a very, you know, I would say, you know, practical way. I'm really interested in in this emphasis of yours and connecting with the community especially at this time when there are a lot of questions about about higher ed and what is the future of our higher ed system in this country? What should universities be doing? How do they make themselves distinguishable from others, distinctive to, you know, to encourage people to support them and to, to come and attend and to work there? Um, so this seems to be just this area can kind of entering into this kind of community-based learning and these partnerships uh, as, a, again, a particular way of positioning Marquette as this is kind of what we are about in the 21st century. Yeah. So, and you've, you know, you think about who our brand and who we are and what differentiates us. And again, it is, it's that Catholic Jesuit identity. And what does that mean? Well, again, you know, we are very concerned about social justice issues. We are very concerned about, you know, uplifting, you know, those who, you know, struggle and don't have a voice and actually, we, we do want our students to be men and women for others. And, you know, as a leader of institutions that we want to train our students to do that, you know, I also have to reflect that myself. And so, you know, as part of, you know, it, it's great for me because I, I believe in this, you know, it's, I believe this is what you know, I should be doing as a person and be able to do that professionally as part of my job. And, you know, again, nobody, I've never heard anybody, you know, come complain that I'm spending too much time trying to work with the community or solve a, a problem that will make Milwaukee better. It's something that's just embraced here by everyone. And so again, when we think about, you know, who we're trying to call to be our students, well, there are students that, again, this will resonate with. And I will tell you that, you know, there are a lot of students who really do care today. You know, I think this generation really does care about addressing social issues and, you know, really being agents of change. And so being an institution where they see that you know, front and center, you know, I think that is a good, again, we think about all the challenges high red faces today, that this is something that, you know, we can point to and say, hey, if you care about this, look, you're going to not only be able to do this while you're here, but you're going to learn through this process. You know, we have service learning. Students get credit, you know, for going into the community and doing service and reflecting back on that. And, you know, they're required to write papers and things about, you know, what they see and feel when they're out. Uh, doing these things. And again, I think that's just part of the fabric of what it means you know, to be Marquette. I know that there's been a conversation or, or throughout the country around things like making sure that, again, we are trauma-informed uh, on our campuses and we're sensitive to that, including within our student population, that students who, themselves who come to our universities themselves often have experienced trauma at some point in their lives. Uh, and that there's been this kind of crude debate around the country. And again, I, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I think you generally end up with camps that say, you know, we have to be really aware of this and very sensitive to the fact that, again, a number of our, our students have experienced trauma. And then a, another side of an argument uh, might say, well, if you're too sensitive to that, then you might inhibit uh, academic freedom. If you, you know, are always mm -hmm. talking about trigger warnings and books that we're reading or creating safe spaces, uh, then you're not letting us kind of, uh, you know, practice academic freedom to the, the extent that we need to be. Um, again, those aren't the exact arguments, but this has been a conversation that's been happening certainly in, in the public. Uh, how do you approach that? What do you think are there ways to kind of balancing the importance of being trauma-informed and also preserving academic freedom? So to me, it's, it's, not, it's, an either, it's not an either or, it's an and. And we have to recognize that, you know, one in two individuals in society, which means one or two of our students have experienced trauma before they step on this campus. And what does that lead to? Well, 
we know that one in three college students, uh, you know, sees a mental health professional in a given year, which means depression, anxiety, you know, those things are very, very, you know, you know, prevalent on college campuses. In the chronicle of higher ed is called it a, a crisis. Uh, so one of the biggest things we need to focus on are, you know, prevention, you know, resilience, so that when give students the tools when they're experiencing some of the challenges that it doesn't become, you know, something where it becomes a crisis and, you know, they, they, they're uh, in, in critical situations. And so, you know, as an institution, we need to, first of all, understand who our population is and then help them grow and evolve, you know, through some of the challenges they may face because they've experienced trauma. But in the same token, the other thing that we're called to do is to be able to be in conversations with others with different views than us. And it's very, very important for us to have those, you know, help our students understand that, hey, not everyone's going to believe or feel the same things that we do, but what really is valuable is having conversations with those individuals and having collegial conversations. Because one of the things that, you know, I believe, and I think many people probably feel this is that we've become much too polarized as a society and we do not have those conversations and we tend to dehumanize other people that don't have the same ideas that we do. And that's not how we learn and grow. We learn and grow by having our ideas challenged and being able to have things, you know, said and done to us that make us, potentially think a little differently. And, you know, just in the way that, you know, until I got involved in the trauma initiative that I didn't understand how communities heal and can grow from trauma, you know, it hit me smack in the face when I couldn't understand why people didn't just automatically trust and believe that, hey, you know, I was going to look out for their best interest in trying to help address their disparities. You know, I needed to, to really hear from them in a lot of times those conversations were very difficult, you know, and kind of challenged me into thinking about my role and who I am and what I should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, likewise, we need our students, you know, to have those same conversations and the same dialogues because, you know, again, you know, we believe that how important reflection, how important prayer is and how important it is for people to really think about what is God's path for them and what is, what is real success look like. And, you know, without those conversations, you know, I'm not sure that we are really, you know, serving our students well. So first, maybe just to summarize the answer, we have to help them, you know, deal with the challenges and the things they're facing around mental health. But this likewise, you know, we need to be able to have uh, spaces to have those critical conversations where it's okay to be difficult and feel uneasy. That's something we need to be able to, to work through. And, and so, you know, I'm a believer that, you know, that, you know, there's no reason why we can't do both on this campus. Well, I really look forward to kind of seeing the progress as uh, these initiatives continue and, and seeing ways of addressing some of those really deep, deep-seated uh, issues that are affecting such a, a broad swath of the, the population in, in Milwaukee. So, uh, Dr. Lovell, we've come to a time in the program now in which we want to get to know you a little bit better through 20 rapid-fire questions in a segment we call 20 questions. I will not ask any follow-up. I will just do these one at a time. We'll get your answers. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, here we go. Number one, what are you reading? So I, I just got done uh, with a book called The, uh, the Demand and Demographics in, for Higher Ed. And it was a fascinating book talking about how we're, we're getting ready to go, go upon a cliff in 2026. We're going to see about a 15 to 25% drop in students entering college due to the Great Recession in 2008. Number two, what is the best gift you have ever received? Oh, 
um, you know, when I turned 50, uh, my wife, Amy, surprised me with a trip uh, with her to, to Mexico. And so we got away for three or four days. So it was just uh, a remarkable uh, time for, for me to spend with her. And I just really enjoyed it. Number three, your favorite saint? Oh, um, I would say uh, Saint Teresa of Lisieux. You know, I've done several novenas to her that have actually been answered, and I just someone who really uh, appeals with me. Number four, your first job. Um, actually, my first job, I, I delivered balloons. I dressed up in a tuxedo and took balloons to people their anniversary or birthday parties. So it was kind of crazy. Hmm. Yeah. Num- number five, two weeks in Paris or ten minutes on the moon. Uh, definitely ten minutes on the moon. That would be just a remarkable opportunity. Uh, I, I probably never get the chance, but I would love to go into space and walk on the moon. Number six, your least favorite chore. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I really don't like doing dishes, you know, and uh, even I don't even like emptying the dishwasher and put the, putting the dishes back away. Number seven, if you could uninvent one thing, what would it be? Oh. You know, <laughs> maybe this is relevant just to this time, but you know, one of the things that are have become really popular recently in Milwaukee and you know, some of them on our campus are these these scooters, like these bird scooters, and you know, they they always make me really nervous. You know, I, I see a student going down this the the road and with cars going by them at fifty miles an hour, and I think, oh gosh, I just I just don't want to stand badly. Yeah. Number eight, your favorite sound? Uh, you know, I I I um I really like the sound of the ocean and waves. I find that to be very relaxing. Number nine, your favorite hymn. Oh boy, there's uh, there's there's a lot of hymns I really like. Um, I, I will say, you know, I'll say, "Be not afraid." How's that? Yeah. Number ten, favorite zoo animal. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I uh, I was one, when I first got to Marquette. One of the students he asked me what my spirit animal was, and I said a cheetah. And I always I do I like to I like uh, I always I've always liked to watch cheetahs run, and I just think they're remarkable animals. Number 11, what superpower would you most want to have? Oh, you know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't mind, I'd want my battle to fly. That would seem pretty cool to be able to, to, to get out that way. I think that'd be fun. Number 12, what's the best thing you cook? Well, my wife is really the cook in our family. So the things that I typically make are on the grill. So I would think anything uh, that is made on the grill is probably the best things that I cook. Number 13, if you were ruler of your own country, what would be the first law you would introduce? Uh, well, I, I think um, yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I want people to, to have freedom. So I think everyone try to make, you know, I would set a law that would allow everyone, you know, in, in the country to have equal rights and to have an equal chance and opportunity to be successful. Number 14, what current or past music group would you most want to join? Oh, so, uh, so I grew up in the, in the 80s was my, you know, high school and college years. And uh, I liked alternative music and my favorite group was New Order. And uh, I think most of us probably don't know who New Order is, but they, uh, they were a group that I definitely would want to be, uh, like to join. Number 15, what is one thing you will never do again? <laughs> well, uh, a few years ago, our family was in vacation in Mexico and uh, my son, I wanted to go on a shark dive and what it encountered was going about 30 miles out into the Pacific ocean to where the ocean drops off to about 20,000 feet or 15,000 feet. And, uh, we 
we uh, they were throwing chum and all this uh, other things in the water to attract sharks. And then when the sharks came, we all jumped in the water and we were just holding a rope. There was no cage or anything. So all these sharks were uh, were all around us. And it was it, it was a <laughs> interesting experience. And I, I'm glad I did it, but I won't do it again. <laughs> Number 16, you have the chance to meet Pope Francis one on one, but you only get one sentence. What do you say? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think that I would, um, if, if I was in front of a Pope, I would ask him to pray for me and to pray that I was able to follow God's will. Number 17, what could you give a 45-minute presentation oh. on with no preparation? Well, there's, you know, so one of the things is, is present, I get to give a lot of presentations and uh, you know, some things that I, I know really well. So I, I probably the thing that right now I could give the presentation are, are around the, the, the challenges and headwinds, you know, facing higher ed and what the future looks like. Number 18, what's one thing you want to try you haven't gotten around to yet? Yeah, um, well, I like to I like to be pretty active, and you know, one thing that I've always thought was neat that I've never gotten to do was parasailing. You know, I, I see these. Uh, we've been places where, uh, you know, actually my my son has done it, uh, but I haven't done it yet. So I think that would be something I'd like to do. Number nineteen. What dumb accomplishment are you most proud of? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> you know, we live in Milwaukee, and every day, every New Year on January first, on New Year's Day, we have something called the Polar Bear Plunge, and. Uh, most of the time, you know, the lake water is well below 20 degrees at that point in the year. And so since I've been in Milwaukee every year, I've actually, you know, jumped in Lake Michigan and, uh, and, uh, you know, it sounds, sounds dumb, but it's a great way to feel alive and to start the new year. So I, I've, I, that's something that, you know, you know, most people, you know, don't probably don't think that's a good idea, but I, I, I think it's, it's invigorating. And number 20, what makes you feel alive? Uh, you know, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm pretty active. You know, I, I run and, and bike and yeah, swim and do other things. So anytime when I'm out in nature and I'm able to be exercising and, and just enjoying, you know, you kind of let your mind go and enjoying the outdoors, you know, that's when I feel alive. Well, President Mike Lovell, you have made it through the 20 questions and through our conversation here on AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to ch talk with us about uh, your priorities and uh, all the best for this upcoming academic year. Uh, well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org. We're on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know is interested in discerning a vocation to join the Jesuits, visit us at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.